Now, the first couple of times I've read your book, I somehow overlooked the following nugget of information. And you wrote that after a practice session, not too long before he made his official announcement to return, Jordan jumped on your back and said, I'm with you guys. How could I possibly miss that? (laughs) What a great little bit of information. I think the better bit of information is that you've read my book more than once, mate. (laughs) (laughs) I'm flattered. That's fantastic. And you still got it after reading it the first time. You didn't have it. That's good news for a start. (laughs) Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23. And, of course, Johnny goes nuts. We're all getting goosebumps thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, you made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time. And I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now, introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 53 and thanks for joining me. Stay up to date with my monthly email newsletter and receive exclusive details on upcoming podcast episodes. For example, earlier this week, I emailed current subscribers with behind-the-scenes details and guest information for this very episode. Simply visit inallairness.com slash news. Today, I'm excited to welcome back three-time NBA champion and now official friend of the show, Luke Longley. We recorded this conversation earlier this week. 20 years ago today, as I record this introduction, Michael Jordan returned to the NBA. Hard to believe it's been two decades. Not only do we chat about the 20th anniversary of Jordan's NBA return, we also examine more of Luke's career with the Bulls particularly his 1994 season. We touch on his battles with Shaquille O'Neal in the 1996 playoffs and round out the discussion with talk about Australia's national team, the Boomers. Luke is currently an assistant coach with them as we speak. Towards the end of the episode, I also share some more great podcast reviews. Add yours by visiting inallairness.com slash review. Show notes for this episode are at inallairness.com slash 53. Now, onto the show. I'm delighted to be joined again today by a three-time Olympian and three-time NBA champion of the Chicago Bulls. Phil Jackson once described him as a, and I quote, massive bull-like redhead, the kind of player that would make a perfect match for our system of play and the makeup of the Bulls. He was my guest in episode five for the podcast and now is an assistant coach with the Australian Boomers, Luke Longley. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on again, mate. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. First things first, may I officially name you a friend of the show? That's a bit late. I thought I already was. <laughs> oh, you definitely are, but I wanted to make it official. So I like to sometimes just trot out, oh, he's a friend of the show. But if I can get your official backing, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, mate, I'll get my people to contact your people and we'll get it in writing. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So the quote that I just used to introduce you from the Zen master, Phil Jackson, is not only very accurate, but it's also taken from the foreword that he wrote in your great book, Running with the Bulls, from back in 1996. As we record this chat, this week marks 20 years since MJ sent the most memorable two-word facts in history, I'm back, announcing his return to the NBA. Now, we briefly touched on this in our first conversation. However, I'd like to chat a little bit more about your Chicago career pre-MJ, and then a little bit with your run as Bulls teammates as well. 
I'm sure this must be the first time anyone's ever asked you about your playing days with Chicago. My <laughs> first time for a few days, yeah. <laughs> Probably for about three hours, to be honest. Uh, now, in February of 1994, the Timberwolves traded you and a future draft pick to Chicago in return for Stacey King. You left the T-Wolves, who were 15 and 36 at the time, and then you arrived on the Bulls team, which was 36 and 16, so almost polar opposites. Chicago ended the season 55 and 27, and you were the third seed in the East. And in the first round of the playoffs, you swept the Cavaliers, which then set up an epic seven-game series against arch-rivals, the New York Knicks. Now, I'd just like to ask you a little bit about this series. The Knicks held the home court advantage and they won the first two games at Madison Square Garden. And in game three, it seemingly had everything. It had a pretty ugly bench-clearing brawl. Scotty Pippen sat out the final few seconds of the game and then Tony Kukoc hit that fantastic buzzer beater to win, which kept you in the series. Do you mind just talking a little bit about your memories of that particular game, Luke? Mate, I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Um, I certainly remember Scotty sitting out. Um, obviously, you know, when, when Michael left the Bulls, Scotty felt like he'd inherited the mantle as the go-to guy in the team, and rightly so. He was our, he was our go-to guy. Um, but I think Scotty learned an interesting lesson that day. Um, you know, he wanted the last shot, and Phil decided to use him as a decoy, which is, you know, not, not many better decoys in the game than Scotty Pippen at that stage. As a result of that disagreement, he set out the play, and then after the game was probably the most powerful bit where, where Bill Carlright, who was the incumbent centre at that stage, basically locked the coaches out of the locker room and um, tore strips off Scotty, which, you know, up until that point, Scotty was pretty pretty much a superstar in my mind and, and, and almost inhuman in the things he could do. Uh, and Bill made him look very human. Uh, and to Scotty's credit, he took it on the chin and he apologised to all of us and he, uh, you know, he never looked back from there and certainly he became in my eyes anyway, a, you know, a better all-around player after that game. So he should thank Tony and Phil for that. Yeah, sure, that's a great answer. And with the fact that Kukoc hit the game winner, which kept you in the series, you were down 2-1 after he hit that shot. Do you remember sort of the feeling in the crowd and just the atmosphere in general once that basket swished through? Or am I testing your memory banks a bit too much? Oh, mate, it gets it gets dropped into the pot of amazing finishes and, and buzzer beaters and moments and electric crowds that just sort of all gets mixed up into why I don't remember the specific crowd no I mean I just remember that obviously uh, you know the whole place went nuts with some very unhappy looking Knicks and at that stage my favourite side in basketball was an unhappy looking Nick <laughs> you know they were just a they were just a bunch of bullies at that stage and Obviously, I had to guard Patrick Ewing all the time, which was he was a bit of a handful. And so to see unhappy Knicks, that was you know, that was worth every every cent as far as I was concerned. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember the shot going in, and I remember I remember the whole sort of scene. Yeah, I'll ask you just in a moment about Pippen's '94 season because I think it's overlooked somewhat in terms of what he did overall through his career because he had a fantastic year, particularly without Jordan, but. The Bulls won game four and then you tied the series at two and you went back to New York for that classic game five, although it's classic depending on who you ask, I guess. It was decided by the alleged phantom foul, Scotty Pippen on Hubert Davis. That's right. What did you think at the time when uh, you saw Hugh Hollins blow the whistle and then all of a sudden, obviously, the Bulls were incensed, the Knicks were loving it, Davis hit a couple of free throws and then ultimately gave the Knicks the win in that game five, which ultimately helped them force the game seven and win back in New York. 
Yeah, mate, look, I, I suppose I've got a different approach to referees and it hasn't always necessarily stood me in good stead. But um, I think they're fallible. I think they're human. I think for all intents and purposes, they you know, they do the bloody best that they can. Mm-hmm. And I think he, you know, on video replay and all that, he clearly made a mistake. I don't choose to be incensed, mate. I, I, I see that as part of the you know, dynamism of the game. The referees are as dynamic as the players. And the day that I play a game without mistakes is the day that I'll expect the referees to not make any mistakes either. And I'm a long, long way from that, mate. <laughs> well, you put it into very good perspective there. Uh, you return back home to Chicago Stadium and then won game six. And probably the most memorable moment of game six would be undoubtedly Scotty Pippen's monster dunk over Patrick Ewing. <laughs> you were right there on yeah. the court when it happened. How was your view of that jam and what do you actually recall of that particular play? Because that was absolutely electric. Yeah, this I remember the whole play. I remember the sequence unfolding. But you know, being a being a ground dweller as I am, and I'm pretty <laughs> sure you are too. I'm definitely a prisoner of gravity. Yes, that's right. The things that would Mike and Scotty could both do it, where they seem to be able to give themselves those occasions when they need it. They seem to be able to get that little bit of extra lift. And I'm not sure if he got a bit of a ride with his left hand off Pat's shoulder, or because that was Michael's favourite thing to do, is to give himself a bit of a ride. And a, Opponents used to get furious about with the rest, but very hard to pick in a sort of a, a clash at the rim. Um, but he just seemed to give himself that extra lift, and he punched it like he really, you know, he punched it on Pat. And not a lot of guys got to do that. I, I managed to do it once, and I must have played against him 500 times, but not like Scotty did, obviously. Um, those kind of things lift the team, they get the crowd out of the stand. Each took the wind out of the Knicks, so he was sort of there, you know, he was their enforcer and the big guy and all that. For Scotty Trim like that was just disrespectful and fantastic all at once. You even had a few kind words, I'm sure, for Spike Lee, who was sitting right on their sidelines as well uh, from memory too. <laughs> Unfortunately, though, for Bulls fans at least, in Game 7, the Knicks held on and eliminated you from the playoffs. Do you remember any of the sort of feelings in the locker room or what may have been said or not, not said in that time after you went back into the confines of Madison Square Garden? See, my memory, mate, is, uh, is, you know, 20 years ago, my memory's, the spectrum of memory, mine's foggy. But when it comes to losing, it gets really foggy. <laughs> I tend to remember stuff around the wins more than yeah. the losses. So, yeah, what was said in Lockham after a loss, I'll never be able to retrieve that, mate. I'm sorry. No, nah, don't, don't apologise at all. I just thought I'd uh, see how much you may recall. Yeah, give it a shot. Not everybody uh, has the... Uh, recollection of all the games I've played in their career as well so it was a big ask actually I do remember I do remember now I do actually I have a clear memory of still saying to Scotty you need to pass it to Luke more <laughs> we should have run more plays for Luke <laughs> he's a potent son of a bitch <laughs> I think that's what yeah that's exactly what I remember now <laughs> I'm surprised I didn't make the forward of the book <laughs> um, <laughs> well you know something's a bit of kept till later yeah exactly right now uh, just briefly chatting about Scotty Pippen's 94 season he came third, I think it was, in MVP voting. He averaged 22 points a game and almost nine rebounds, six assists, three steals and a block for good measure per game. And they were career highs in a couple of categories as well. You guys went 55 and 27. You played over four seasons with Scotty Pippen. Was what you saw of him in 94 without MJ the best or was it when he was alongside Jordan? Well, mate, I, I think that the measure of and I have to think this because statistically I was never a standout. But the measure of anyone's season is how far into the playoffs you get winning a championship. Mm-hmm. So in my opinion, Scotty's best was probably the 72 and 10 year. Yep. 
uh, and you know, and then the two years after that, individual numbers. I sounds trite, but I don't I, I don't rate that really. You can put up fifty shots and get twenty two points a game, and you're, you're killing your own team. So mm-hmm. but I do remember Scotty being very very effective, especially he was commanding a lot of double teams. Um, he was shouldering defensive burdens. I'm surprised he only got one block a game because he seemed to get more blocks than that. But at the end of the day, we you know we got knocked out in the second round. No, great answer. Now, you were also fortunate enough to play at both the old Chicago Stadium and then the new United Centre. How do you compare the two arenas and did you have a clear favourite? Well, my favourite is United Centre because we hoisted some championship trophies in there and um, I got presented with two of my three rings at the United Centre. The third one was in a... Uh, in a townhouse in Phoenix by Jerry Reinsdorf. <laughs> it was a bit of, not quite as glamorous. He sort of stopped by in his station wagon and dropped it off. <laughs> but, uh, no, so the United Center, I love the United Center. I've been back there with my family and I've taken my new wife there who hadn't obviously seen any of that. And the old stadium was cool in its own regard. It was creaky and stinky and, uh, you know, they probably at some stage used to smoke cigarettes in there and it just had that sticky floor feeling. Like the old Madison Square Garden, that was awesome to get there and, and be and have all that history around it. But I love the new facility. The new facility's got warm warm water for a start. Yeah. Um, better locker. You know, the locker room in Chicago Stadium was like a locker room out of a high school. You know, little tin lockers and two showers, and you know the tape of the, the treatment room was. You know, you could get the trainer and one guy in there. Yeah, you had to go up all these stairs. That would be us hockey players had been digging out with the skates for years and get a duck under a whole bunch of beams just to get out onto the court. Yeah. So, no, I, the new facility was Rolls-Royce, mate, and you got to like that. Yeah, and you were there from the very first day as well, so that's always good too. That's to right. Playing a brand-new arena. Let's uh, fast-forward a little bit to March of 1995, and on March the 7th, 8th, and 9th, Jordan appeared at the Birdo Centre, which is the Bulls' uh, practice facility in Deerfield, and if it hadn't already... His appearance there fueled massive speculation that he'd end his baseball career and then resume his playing days in the NBA. Now, the first couple of times I read your book, I somehow overlooked the following nugget of information. And you wrote that after a practice session, not too long before he made his official announcement to return, Jordan jumped on your back and said, I'm with you guys. How could I possibly miss that? (laughs) What a great little bit of information there. I think the better bit of information is that you've read my book more than once, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm flattered. That's fantastic. And you still got it after reading it the first time you didn't have it. So that's, that's good news for a start. I'm pretty sure he was there more than the 7th, 8th and ninth. He was there a lot. Yeah. And um, there was a lot of speculation about whether he was coming back or whether he wasn't. But at the end of the day, MJ's not coming to practice with us and, and going head-to-head with Scotty in, in scrimmages and all that just for fun. You know, he's a calculating guy. I think we all had the sense that that's what it was about. Um, he just didn't want to make it official until he would... I actually used this quote earlier, so it's kind of stealing my own quote, but uh, he was just pulling up the turbo. He was getting himself up to pressure and up to speed and recalibrating everything and getting ready so that when he did come back, he was Michael Jordan again. And, mate, it didn't take him more than three or four days, to be honest. But, I mean, it could have easily taken a month. He would have taken whatever time he needed. But um, we knew he was coming back. From the very first day he started lurking around the Birdo Centre, we knew what was going on. It must have been like a complete media circus, I guess, 
even before the official news broke, but once it actually became official, I'm guessing that anybody and everybody would be there on the outskirts of the practice facility trying to get a piece of what was going on inside. Yeah, certainly that all changed. But what people don't know is he actually lived in the Burrow Centre for the week prior to that. They had been brought him in meals. He slept in the change room. He just practiced for a solid week and never left the Burrow. No one knew he was there. He got snuck in during undercover at night. Wow. And they rolled him a cot out in the locker room. He just lived there and um, and got his game up to speed. And then um, only once he was... No, I'm just bullshitting. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm there. I'm hanging on every word you're saying there, Luke. You're all away, weren't you? You're all away. <laughs> I'm, thinking, I'm actually picturing this in my mind, thinking, hang on. <laughs> yeah, straight away there was security on the gates. There was, um, you know, there was media trucks everywhere. It was, you know, it was rock and roll all of a sudden. You know, we all had to start buying fancy clothes, mate. We were back under more scrutiny than before. Crazy. Now, I, I don't know what's crazy. The fact that I believed your story there <laughs> or not, but you completely have your hook, line, and sinker there. So well played. Um, now, NBC, uh, they actually broadcast the game. It was March 19th, 1995, Bulls at Pacers. And it went across most of the USA nationally. Even here in Australia on Channel 10, they showed a replay of the game within 24 hours of when it was played, which was quite huge even back for the mid-90s in Australia on TV, that's for sure. You are amazing. Yeah, do you have many recollections of just the game day itself or arriving to Market Square Arena and how different it may have been from your previous match, which I think was against the Milwaukee Bucks back at Chicago? I mean, yeah, snippets, mate. Things like um, getting a police escort from the hotel to the arena. <laughs> um, even then, we were going very slowly because there was that much traffic going into the arena. It was parting of the crowd. We had to jam ourselves into the arena. And then when we got there, Usually you get to the game a couple of hours before the game and it's pretty quiet mm-hmm. to shoot around. We were out there shooting and warming up an hour and a half before like you usually are with no one there except the ball boys and the stands were full, mate. The people were people were there in force. Most NBA games mid-season, you know, three quarters full and for the Bulls maybe four-fifths full but it's never mid-season games, you know, uh, uh, that sort of affair but obviously there was an empty seat in the house and um, and the fans were sort of, everything was going on before the game even started. The place was just rocking. And, and Indiana's not the most rocking place. So that was good. <laughs> That's true from what I've read as well. Now, the game itself, uh, Will Perdue started at centre. And something I actually wasn't aware of until I had read your book was the fact that in the pre-season of, I think, 94, 95, you suffered like a uh, a stress fracture which didn't actually get discovered for a few weeks. And that actually meant that you came off the bench in every game during the regular season, which I think was the first time you'd done that in your career, that you hadn't started at least at one game in your regular season day. So can you talk a little bit about that injury and sort of what it meant trying to come back off the bench as the playoffs actually commenced in 95? Yeah, mate, I, I had that many injuries that it was just part of playing the game. Um hmm. I, I do remember not not being very happy about starting behind Will. I, I remember being pretty convinced that I was a fair bit better than him. And the practice, you know, the evidence of the practice was that I was, you know, I felt much better equipped to do the job that needed to do. Mm-hmm. So it was probably a good thing. Made me work harder, got got me a bit focused. I'm pretty sure in hindsight they were just trying to make Will look good so they could shock him for a trade. Okay, so you didn't <laughs> have a few ulterior motives, eh? Oh, I don't know. I think he went to San Antonio not long after the 95 season ended, from memory. Yeah, he might have been part of the Dennis Rodman thing. I'm not sure. But, yeah, look, I, 
to be candid, I probably didn't care if I was off the bench or, or starting at that stage. I just was happy winning games instead of being in Minnesota. Yeah, I can definitely uh, understand there. And in that game in particular, we're talking about the March 19th game at Indiana. You came off the bench and played 23 minutes and then you had seven points, three boards and one assist. You lost in OT, 103 to 96, but I think that's sort of a little consequence looking back on it just as a regular season game that happened to be Jordan coming back. I think that was another one of those locker rooms after the game where Phil said, Mike, you know, you need to get the ball to loop more. <laughs> Clearly seven points is not enough of an offensive reduction. I'm sure it took Mike a while to learn that. <laughs> he adjusted, though. He, he learned to play with you. Yeah. In time, he did adjust his game. <laughs> now, I'd like to quickly chat about some of the personalities and guys that you played with during your time in Chicago. And prior to the three-peat seasons, you played with guys like BJ Armstrong, Horace Grant, uh, Big Bill Cartwright, you know Pete Myers, Scott Williams, John Pack. Corey Blunt, I think was a rookie year. Johnny Paxson. Most of those guys were part of the three Bulls titles earlier in the nineties, but some left the team before that second run happened. What sort of uh, memories or experiences can you relate to, even twenty plus years onwards, with some of those guys and the friendships that you uh, probably have developed since? Um, I think for me, the eye opener coming to the Bulls at that stage with those guys all. Uh, were much more professional and prepared than what I'd been used to in Minnesota. Minnesota, there weren't a lot of pros there um, compared to the guys in Chicago. The coaching staff were established and had had success. There was sort of an expectation and a, a prearranged sort of set of rules and understanding amongst everybody. And they just, you know, uh, they were just a very, very different outfit. And uh, I remember just trying to soak up whatever I could. I was like a kid in a candy store. I mean, I, I was just watching and learning and, Bill Cartwright was a big influence on me. He took a real interest in me and um, really helped my game a lot. Um, very fond of Bill, who was a who's a class act. Uh, John Paxson too. Um, still friends with BJ Armstrong. Saw him in Canberra uh, 12 months ago or so. He was looking at um, Dante. I think trying to pick up Dante as a he's an agent now. BJ. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But yeah, those guys all had the you know the swagger of success about them, and I wanted some of that. Oh, that's great. And I actually had Bill Cartwright as a guest more recently on the podcast, and he also spoke very highly of you as well when I brought up the fact that, uh, of course, as we're both Australians, I guess there was some sort of link there, and he spoke very fondly of you as well for what it's worth. That's great. Nice to know. Yeah. I don't want to hold you for too much longer. I really do appreciate your time here. Um, in 1996, in the postseason, you met the Orlando Magic in the Eastern Conference Finals. The season prior, 1995, you got put out in six games in an up-and-down series where MJ struggled at times. Uh, he also... I remember I missed, a, I missed a chip shot from an MJ pass in the last game in the last second to lose the series. Yeah, I remember. I do remember that bit. Don't often remember losing one of that one. Is that game six at Chicago? Yeah. Yeah, right. Okay, so and then after that game as well, the former Bull, Horace Grant, he was actually then hoisted up onto the shoulders of the Magic players I don't know if he actually wanted to get put up on the shoulders or not, but did that have any sort of lasting impact when it came to the 96 Eastern Conference Finals? And I know he missed most of the series with an injury after Game 1. He hurt his elbow, but did that sort of give any extra motivation or it wasn't really even needed at that time? It wasn't needed, um, but certainly I think, um, you know, if you need more reasons to be shitty about losing a playoff series, <laughs> you know, that, that certainly didn't help. No. Um, Scotty and Horace were pretty tight. Yeah. So yeah, Scotty had his own motivations. But yeah, we, we certainly use Horace as a bit of a focal point at times. You, you do you use whatever you, you can. But we had plenty of other reasons to go beat 
them and my personal reason obviously was Shaq. You know, I um I spend that off season weight training and, and basically trying to prepare my body to handle the physical onslaught that Shaq's offensive game is just really you know, was was a real sort of an, a bullying attack, and so I had to do, try to develop some ways to counter that. And I think you could probably tell me better than I can, but I think if you look at Shaq's stats against me versus most other guys from then on, I'm pretty sure I did a, a good job for most of my career because I made it a real, I made it my calling card. That's what made me want to be the best defender that I could be was um, having to deal with Shaq all the time. And, and uh, yeah, I think that's probably. In hindsight, in many ways, a legacy in my own mind anyway of my career was that I could handle Shaq one-on-one as well as anyone else in the league. That was my my opinion only, but that was what I set about to do, and that was the way I was going to contribute to getting, to getting past him the next year. Oh, that's great to hear that sort of insight as well. And you're such a big body as well, so I guess that would have troubled him a little bit as well. Obviously, he was a huge guy himself, and pretty much in 95, 96, he's really at his athletic peak almost and was just a phenom basically but what what sort of things would you have done off the court in trying to prepare for Shaq what sort of stuff could you have done to I know obviously weight training and whatever else but what anything out of the ordinary that we might not know yet well yeah the first one you already mentioned but I put on 10 nearly 10 sort of eight and a half I think it was kilos of muscle Mm -hmm. um, all through the hips and legs and ass um, a little bit in the chest but basically I had to be able to get lower to handle his load yep um, and I also did a lot of stuff of taking blows on the chest, you know, with hit bags and that sort of thing, just learning to absorb. Because he, he goes straight at your sternum with his shoulder and try to sort of cave you in, basically. So I did a lot of stuff with that with a guy here in Perth who was a, a combat guy. So not really anything very exciting, mate. It was just sort of, it was, it was like combat training, and I really was focused on the defensive end. And I watched a fair bit of tape, too. Uh, at that stage, it was tape. Interestingly, to put it all into context, you said Michael announced with a sax. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it really does date it. And, and the fact that I was watching tapes, like reel-to-reel VHS tapes, like it is a while ago, isn't it? Yeah, it is going back a while. And I've got quite a few videotapes in the collection of uh, yeah. of old Bulls games and, and plenty of stuff like that as well. But yeah, it shows our age. I'm 40 this year, so uh, you're only a few years ahead of me there. And um, it's definitely going back to the old Halcyon days there with faxes and VHS tapes. Yeah, I mean, when I started in the league, there weren't mobile phones. Um, it's a long time ago. That's why the memories be hazy sometimes. But um, I do remember, obviously, that year that you talk about, us, uh, the next year we went and I think we smashed them in four, four or five games, didn't we? Yeah, you did. You swept the magic, yeah. Swept them, that's right. Yes, swept them. So that was uh, that was awesome to see. I was cheering from back here in Australia, like many millions of other basketball fans at the time, I'm sure. Um, now, just speaking about the conditioning of things, just one more thing. I don't want to labour the point, but Chip Schaefer was one of the most respected trainers and minds in the game in terms of what he could help players do. I know you've probably had a fair bit to do with Chip over the years. How was uh, the Bulls sort of training staff and the behind the scenes with, I know you had a great facility uh, by the time you were into the championship seasons, but do you mind just talking a little bit about how that sort of worked? Yeah, well, Chip was very much in charge of the, you know, the, the rehab and, um, and that sort of thing. But we had, uh, Alvin Neal, um, and Eric Helland were the strength and conditioning guys. So they were the, the prehab, if you like. And at that stage, that was cutting edge. They got the most work out of me or more work out of me than anyone had before. I was, and obviously I, my appetite was developing too, but 
they're very good at their job and they, they contributed hugely. Just before we do go, Luke, there was a really interesting article about yourself and also about Australian basketball and its future that appeared in the Sydney Morning Herald, I think over the weekend, just gone. And I'll include links to that in the show notes to this episode. Do you mind maybe just talking a little bit about that feature and yeah, also the importance of basketball trying to strengthen its hold on the Australian sporting public? First of all, I, um, I really was quite flattered by the article. The journalist just did a great job of taking our conversation. And, and you know, obviously, everyone likes to have nice things written about them, but I was really happy with that article. And obviously, basketball's had its twos and fro's with the Australian public. At the end of the day, it's just such a great spectator sport. We've got so many young kids playing it. I think we're the second in the country in terms of junior participation. We've got good talent overseas. You know, the NBL's you know, it's re-establishing itself. I just can't see why basketball doesn't have a bright future in, in, in Australia. I mean, I'm sure it does. It's good to see people taking a real interest, people like yourself, people around the country. So I'm excited to be part of it. I'm excited to be back amongst it as a coach. Um, and just, yeah, well, that's a pretty general ramble, but that was a very nice article. It's titled Luke Longley from running with the Chicago Bulls to falling in love with basketball again. And I'm probably going to butcher the guy's name, but he's David Seigel. Yeah, yeah, David. A great read, and I'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. And and I absolutely love the game of basketball. Obviously, I wouldn't be doing this podcast if I didn't, but um, I'd love the, the game to get back to how it was when I really first fell in love with it back in the 90s here in Australia. The NBL was absolutely rocking. I'd love nothing more for it to get back to that, but it's uh, certainly struggled a bit recently, and hopefully it can find its way out and then get back to national prominence again. Agreed, mate. A bit more freeware TV would be nice. Yeah, that's true. Now, you're working with the Australian Boomers as an assistant coach at the moment, and Australia is starting to enter a really great generation where there's some great talent around, both here in Australia, and that's already headed to play overseas and then into the NBA. Do you mind just talking a little bit about how things are tracking now with the the national team and and where you think things are going over the next couple of years? Yeah, mate. Well, obviously, we've got a great, as you said, we've got a great pool of talent. We've got older guys. We've got emerging guys. We've got fantastic coaching staff. We've got all that. The main thing we've got to keep our fingers crossed for is health. I think if we have a healthy Bogan and a healthy Mills and a healthy Joe Ingalls and a healthy Dunder, you know, if we, all our guys can be healthy, then I really like it. We're just not deep um, in terms of if we have guys start to drop off, but, you know, there's a big drop off. Yeah, true. And then as far as the Australian team goes, what are you sort of building up to towards next? Obviously, we've got the Olympics next year, but any other sort of tournaments that are coming up or exhibition series, what are you sort of leading towards? Mate, we've, we've got the unheard of, might be the first time ever, I don't know, you could check that because you seem to have a great uh, ability to find information. We're playing a two-game, best-of-two series against New Zealand this year, one in New Zealand, one in Melbourne. Oh, right. Cumulative score. Nice. So we've got to beat the Kiwis to get to go to Rio, basically, and they're obviously getting better and they've got some good guys. So we're taking that very seriously. There'll be a European camp beforehand and... Um, yeah, I think there's a game in Melbourne, so get along. I'd like to see you there, mate. Yeah, I'd love to. I uh, I spent a majority of my, my years in Bendigo in central Victoria and uh, recently, in the last couple of years, moved up to New South Wales. So I'm in Coffs Harbour at the moment, but uh, it'd be fantastic to be there for that game in particular and just to meet you in person. It's been fantastic to have another chance to chat with you for a, a second time and just a, a bit of a throwaway here, but back in 1991, I think, after you were drafted by the T-Wolves, before you actually started playing for them, you probably will not remember this at all, but the the Boomers 
visited Bendigo in central Victoria and took on, I think, a Chinese team. I'm not sure, some exhibition game. And I bailed you up for about all of seven seconds and got you to sign your NBA hoops card. It's you posing with the basketball above your head. Oh, yeah. That card paid for my first house. But you go ahead. I can imagine it would have. Yeah, I bailed you up for all of about six seconds and, and uh, asked you to sign up for me. But that was an absolute highlight. And I was, I don't know, it must have been 17 or 18 at the time. So yeah, really? it was the highlight of my year. So I've got to, got to say thank you for <laughs> taking the you. time to, uh, to sign it for me. And it's been awesome to have a couple of opportunities to chat with you in uh, a couple of decades later. No worries. Any time, as a friend of the show, I suppose I'll be on more regularly. <laughs> I'd love that. I'd absolutely love that. And next time, hopefully, we might be able to try and get Skype to work in our favour, and then uh, it'd be great to sort of get you on and have a bit of a video chat as well, where we could uh, I could actually show you the uh, the card in question, and we can go from there. But thanks again, Luke. It's been an honour to chat with you again today. Good on you, mate. Thank you. See ya. Thanks for listening. I welcome your interaction with the show. You can suggest topics or guests that you'd like to hear conversations with, you can leave me a voicemail. Simply visit inallandis.com slash voice. Click start recording, leave a message and press stop. You can even listen back to what you've said before submitting. Press send and you're done. Now it's time to share some more great feedback from fans of the show. Here are the next two reviews in chronological order. I'll read more in future episodes. Pronouncing people's names is not my forte, but I'll have a go. Thanks to Jeff Piet in Portland, hopefully Jeff, I haven't butchered that too much, has a great headline which says, you had me at Chess Pass. Just discovered your podcast and it's fantastic. I randomly selected a few episodes to check out during a long drive and really enjoyed them. You officially won me over during episode 19 about the 1990 to 1994 All-Star Games when you said, one of the best plays was the Chess Pass Joe Dumas made to Robert Parrish for the dunk. Not sure why, but that brought me right back to 1990. Keep up the great work. Shameless self-promotion is my middle name or names. com slash 19 to hear that episode that Jeff's referring to. Thanks very much, Jeff. That's a very good review, mate. Next up is Corey Williams. And no, it's not that Corey Williams of the Bulls 1993 NBA Championship team. The review is titled, Best Podcast on Jordan and the Historical NBA. Very enjoyable listen. I've been learning a lot about 70s to 90s era basketball history, and this podcast has been a crucial ingredient that pairs very well with the NBA's history books. Quite an impressive list of guests, which, when paired with Adam's engaging questions, thank you, provide rewarding first-hand accounts of their time in and around the game. I particularly enjoy the Rick Barry and Sadale Threat episodes. Keep up the great work in making the most detailed podcast on basketball history. Well, thank you, Corey. That's an excellent review. And, of course, more shameless self-promotion. Rick Barry is episode 46, and Sadal 3 was in episode 12. Worldwide, the show currently has 48 reviews, 45 on iTunes, and 3 on Stitcher. Thank you again for your great support. If you add a review, I'd love to read it out on a future episode of this show. And as I do like to say, your ratings and reviews are one of the best ways to support the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please tell your basketball-loving friends about it. Your word-of-mouth recommendations are really worth their weight in gold. Now, you can subscribe to my show in various ways. iTunes, visit inallairness.com slash review. Add it to your Stitcher playlist, inallairness.com slash Stitcher. You can also subscribe on Player FM, TuneIn Radio, Pocket Casts, and other podcatchers. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues, inallairness.com. 
Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at InAllAnnis. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash InAllAnnis. Join me next time for another edition of the show.